This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today... New York Times best-selling author of five and soon-to-be six books, including The Disappearing Spoon and The Bastard Brigade. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Slate, Psychology Today. He has been featured on Radiolab and All Things Considered. And he was recently awarded the American Chemical Society's Grady Stack Award for Science Communication for his achievement in interpreting chemistry for the public. And that's just a partial resume. I'm sure his greatest achievement was being shouted out on this particular show about three weeks ago. All the way from Washington, D.C., Sam Keen. How are you doing, Sam? Good. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. D.C., now you and I are recording this the day after inauguration. And based on what we are seeing, uh, it looks like things are almost uh, military camp quiet there. Is that the way it actually is there? Yeah, uh, it was a little uh, raucous here the past few weeks before that. Uh, But I wandered down yesterday and couldn't get really close. And it was pretty undramatic compared to what it could have been. So I think that was a good thing after the past few weeks. So you actually, you you took it onto yourself to, to venture down and see what it was like. I mean, was it a part of town, like right down by the mall where you, you quite literally could not go? Yeah, on both sides, north and south of it. You just could not get anywhere near the White House, the Capitol, the National Mall, anything like that. Right. Uh, just mostly miles of fences, a lot of National Guard dudes sitting around. And so here we are today on the day after di- do we know if there's any kind of easing up or whether or not? Because obviously life is not going to be normal there for a little bit of time. Is there is there any plan on when that's going to ease up? Not that I've heard specifically. Uh, the National Mall obviously will open again at some point. But the Capitol and the White House, it's kind of up to the Secret Service and the Biden administration on yeah. whether they want to open things up or if they're going to sort of keep this fortress mentality. Now, speaking of the Biden administration, now what you obviously have some pretty significant connections to the scientific community in Washington and around the United States. Would it be safe for me to assume and to say that the change of administration has also brought with it a sigh of relief amongst most of the scientific community? I think that's right. Uh, For a little essay collection that I edited a few years ago, I talked about the March for Science, which was sort of unprecedented, the idea that scientists would be protesting, getting involved in politics, things like that. But I think there was a great worry, and a lot of that worry was substantiated that there was going to be a lot of political interference with uh, institutions like the USDA, uh, the CDC, other places that were normally nonpartisan. But in this case, the directors people put in were kind of muzzling the people below them and things like that. So if nothing else, I think they'll be relieved to sort of get back to their normal everyday jobs without worry about interference. Yeah, I know up here in Canada, we had uh, a right-wing government for the better part of a decade, not anything uh, on on the scope of what you've been going through for the last four years there. But I recall that when they were finally replaced, uh, when Trudeau was elected a couple of years ago, many people in the scientific community here expressed it as kind of like somebody had had a foot on your chest for the last decade and they finally took it off. Yeah, I think that's probably similar to here. I think uh, there's relief more than anything. Yeah. Okay. And you're originally from Sioux Falls, is that correct? correct? I am in South Dakota. Yep. In South Dakota. here. So here's a fun fact that you might not know is that I am currently in Toronto and that Sioux Falls and Toronto are on almost identical latitudes. Looking at a map, it's always, there's always these little funny things uh, in the U.S. that, you know, Detroit is actually 
east of Atlanta, things like right. that. There's just, yeah. There, but, uh, okay, I did not know that. Are you ready to do this? I'm ready, yes. All right, here we go. Thing one. Thing number one. Ancient hunter-gatherers had gorgeous teeth. This comes to us from a man named Sam Keen. Have you heard of this guy? I Barely, yeah. <laughs> uh, this comes from uh, your own podcast. One of the things I forgot to mention is of your podcast, The Disappearing Spoon. And you did an entire episode on the fact that there is some controversy about whether modern orthodontics is actually interfering with our health. But let's go back and start from the top of that, which is that ancient hunter-gatherers, cavemen, etc., apparently had quite gorgeous teeth. Yeah, you would think that people, you know, way back when, thousands and tens of thousands of years ago, before they had dentists and uh, dental floss and toothpaste and all that stuff, you would think they would have terrible teeth. But if you look at skulls from ancient peoples, they actually had really gorgeous teeth. They were nice and straight and even. They had really, really good chompers. I'm assuming, obviously, not necessarily the white that we value in 21st century aesthetics, but at the same time, the alignment of the teeth was quite good. And it all makes sense. As you mentioned in the podcast, straight teeth are very natural for animals, which is what we are. And that back in the day, all of this, we were just one of the many, many animals who just had well-aligned, good, well-established teeth. And then, lo and behold, a, a few things happened. Yeah. Uh, a couple of months ago, right before the pandemic, actually, I was in Uganda uh, uh, trekking around with some gorillas. And one thing that really struck me was how much time they just spent chewing and chewing and chewing. I mean, a lot of their day was filled with chewing raw plants and things like that. Yeah. You mentioned that they spend up to half their waking hours chewing. Is that correct? Yeah, they spend a lot of time. Gorillas are sort of an outlier in that they only chew on plants. But even chimpanzees, who might eat fruits and nuts and things like that, they spend a lot of time just chewing their food. It's tough food. It's raw food. And doing that actually strengthens their jaw muscles and their jaw bone specifically, more importantly. Because we often think about bone as just sort of scaffolding, like it's concrete or some dead material. But bone is actually a living tissue and it responds to stress. And one way it responds to stress is by growing and getting larger and thickening. So if you spend so much time chewing as our ancient ancestors did or as apes do, etc., then what's happening, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the elasticity in the bone of the jaw is actually expanding and making room for all of the teeth that are in your face. Exactly. Jawbone gets a little longer and also gets wider, and that just gives teeth more room to come in. And it doesn't have to be a lot. You know, even a centimeter or a couple of millimeters might make the difference between having crooked teeth and having enough room for all of those teeth to fit in there. So, of course, our, our cave ancestors did the same. They spent all this time chewing and consequently their jaws were taking the form that fit all of these teeth in. But then lo and behold, a few things come in, including the Industrial Revolution, including cooking, which makes our food softer, including grinding things into flour and meal, including meat grinders, and all of these things make chewing much less of a burden than it was for our ancestors. Yeah, so there were really two steps there, as you said. It was cooking that came in first that softened food up. And then the Industrial Revolution from a few hundred years ago really accelerated that process. And a lot of the foods we eat nowadays, they are quite tasty, but they're almost uniformly very soft, especially things like baby food, which is basically mush. 
And because of that, a lot of our jaws never get the strain and the stress that they need to grow to their full potential, and crooked teeth are the result. Right. And you uh, you mentioned a great quote from a Victorian dentist that said, the, the better the school, the worse the teeth. The idea being that people who had it better off were not having to chew as much, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so basically, yeah, in, in those days, the richer people had worse teeth because they were the ones eating uh, the soft processed food more. They also, I didn't mention this as much in the podcast, but they also often had cavities and dark teeth. So because they were eating too much sugar, because that was sort of a luxury at the time. And I think actually they used to darken their teeth to some degree. It was considered fashionable back then to have darker teeth because it showed that you were eating these rich uh, sugary foods. Oh, that's interesting. In the same sense that back in the 1600s, it was more fashionable to have paler skin because it implied that you were indoors and did not have to manually labor outside. Okay, that's interesting. And also, you know, the funny thing is this reminded me in terms of the the work that you have to do chewing makes, makes your mouth healthier, for lack of a better word, is the same idea that our consumption now of so much processed food has led to an increase in obesity, where you have the situation in the U.S. now where you have people who make less money with a higher rate of obesity because the only food they can afford is processed food, which our body does not have to work harder to break down. And consequently, it's it's, it's a similar idea. Yeah, there's less fiber in this food. Uh, It's more calorie rich. So you're eating the same amount to feel full, but there's going to be more calories in there. Right, exactly. Now, all of the stuff that you and I have talked about so far when it comes to this is stuff that is relatively well known. This is stuff that is factually not really controversial. However, in the podcast, you did also mention a more controversial topic, which is that modern orthodontics is making us unhealthy. Yeah, it might actually be contributing to these sorts of problems. Uh, in a couple of ways. One is that modern orthodontics is usually restrictive, so it's pulling the jaw back and sort of cramming the teeth together even more, which might uh, decrease the amount of room we have to allow our teeth to grow in. So it might be making the teeth problem worse. And the other idea is that modern orthodontics is actually changing the shape of our inner palate and interfering with breathing. And so it might have a adverse effect on how we breathe, might force us to breathe through our mouths more, which is contributing to uh, colds, diseases, things like that. It changes the air coming in. So there might be other problems linked to the fact that a lot of people get braces. It's more controversial, but the idea is out there. Now, you mentioned braces almost exclusively uh, on the podcast. Was there any difference in in terms of other orthodontic procedure, like like Invisalign and that kind of? I don't think we know as much. That's a little newer. Braces were the one that people have sort of focused the most on. But if I interpreted their theories correctly, then I think anything that's really restricting teeth as opposed to sort of pushing them out and making more room would be something that they would probably have an issue with. Right. And it makes more sense that they focused on that because, as you mentioned, between half and three quarters of all U.S. teenagers have had braces. I must admit that seemed high to me. Yeah, but I mean, I I just kind of look back at uh, the people in my class and growing up and I'm like, I think you know, half of them probably did have braces at least. So there's a lot out there. It's odd because of the fact that I didn't have braces. It's, it's an experience that I'm unfamiliar with. Oh, but I now that you. I think about it, uh, did you have braces? I did, yeah. Well, it's funny because I have I, I did not have braces and neither of my daughters did, although one of my daughters had Invisalign, which is one of the reasons why I asked. Um, hmm. But this also leads us to another uh, rather controversial figure named John Mew, who's an orthodontist, a British orthodontist, who you talk about in the podcast. He's a, a fascinating character, a former Formula One race car driver, correct? 
Yes, uh, and he hand-built this castle in England that he lives in with a moat and a drawbridge and everything. He's kind of a good old British eccentric, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He definitely looks like one if you want to pull up a Google image search of him. Uh, but he and his son are both fellow orthodontics, and they came up with this this kind of alternative to modern orthodontics, and it has become quite controversial in the orthodontic community. It is, yes. I believe he lost his license at one point for sort of attacking other... Um uh, other orthodontists. Uh, he is not one to compromise and not one to hold punches. And he really believes that orthodontics are contributing to all of these problems that we talked about at the beginning. Right. And the other thing that that's, I guess, led to them being controversial is that the more that their theories about this, what, what was the word for it? It's not, or, it's orthotropics. Is that what it was? Orthotropics, yes. It almost has a vibe of eugenics to it in terms of the way that it's been interpreted by some people. So even if their heart was in the right place, it seems like some of the usages of his ideas have been a little bit retrograde. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it is it's not necessarily them promoting these ideas, but once they were put out there, it sort of resonated with people who believe these other things and they sort of pick and they sort of picked up the mantle and have run with it. So Right. I mean as as the New York Times said, in virality, the muse have lost some control of their idea. There are there are many people on YouTube, there are vloggers, and the problem is their their idea of orthotropics was largely based on use, use on children, but now people are proposing it for adult cosmetic purposes. Yeah. And uh, obviously the adult jaw is much more set than the child jaw. I think the adult jaw is maybe a little bit more plastic than we might think, but you're not going to see the same sort of dramatic changes that they were really focusing on in children. Yeah. Now, when you were talking about him, you sort of in, in, in the podcast did not come to any sort of significant conclusions about how you felt about his theories, but you did mention that there was some, uh, quite a bit of success when he, with his research into twins, taking two twins, one of them having standard orthodontic procedure and one of them having the orthotropic, and there being quite a difference. Yeah, you can definitely see it. So he basically took twins and one of them had traditional braces for some reason, and one of them got orthotropics. And you can see a difference in their face. I should say it is a small sample size. It was only something like a dozen children, but it was striking, even though it was quite small. So there might be something there to it. I wouldn't endorse it, but it did strike me when I looked at the pictures that he had. It seems like a common theme throughout a lot of your writing is the human stories behind the science. Yeah, I think that's a really... That's something I really want to emphasize for a couple of reasons. One, I think it makes the science more approachable and interesting. And also, I think it just makes the science easier to understand in some way, because that's just how the human brain remembers information best. We're really bad with things like figures and dates and disconnected facts. But if you can put it within the matrix of a story where there are heroes and villains and there's conflict and drama, we're very good about remembering information within a story. It's true. And actually, one, uh, one of the things that I do appreciate about your writing and one of the things I enjoyed about Disappearing Spoon, which I would highly recommend listeners go and pick up a copy of and read it, it's great, uh, is, is the fact that you sort of walk a really nice line between making things accessible to the layman, someone like me, and condescending. Do you know what I mean? Which is which is a bit of a thin line to walk. The idea of, 
I know something that you don't know, and I want you to understand it, but I don't think you're an idiot for not knowing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I just I just like the science, and I want to sort of share my enthusiasm for it and make sure that people understand it. I think it's fascinating by itself, and I think it'll really open up the wider world and show you some things that you probably wouldn't have expected if you can just understand that science. So I really do have an enthusiasm for getting that science out there to people. Which takes us to thing number two, because you ventured into historical narrative a little bit with the Bastard Brigade, which takes us to thing number two. So I'm going to pitch that to you. Thing two. What is thing number two, Sam? Thing number two is my book, The Bastard Brigade, which is basically about the plot to stop the Nazi atomic bomb during World War II. Because the Allies, especially Allied scientists, were convinced that Nazi Germany actually had the inside track on the atomic bomb at the beginning of the war, and that the Nazi scientists were going to build a bomb give it to Hitler, and that he was going to destroy the world with it. And they were obviously terrified at this thought. Now, is it true that the Germans actually had a head start on the atomic bomb when World War II began? Yeah, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, atomic fission, so uranium fission, was actually discovered in Germany in early 1939. So they were the world leaders. They had the best scientists in the field. They had great scientists like Werner Heisenberg, working on their atomic research project. And they actually founded their project in September 1939, which was just one month into the war. Yeah, And it was two years before the United States got involved with the Manhattan Project. So it was actually, they had a two-year head start on the Manhattan Project. Wow, that is crazy. Mm -hmm. And it makes you wonder, of course, you know, as the book goes into how exactly it did not go through. And it was it was this kind of serendipitous sequence of mistakes that the Germans made, uh, sort of proactive action by the United States in terms of the Bastard Brigade of the title of the book itself. There were all these things leading into the fact that the Germans attempts to develop the nuclear bomb never came to fruition. Yeah, there was a combination of things like just petty, stupid rivalries among the German scientists where, you know, they didn't like one person for whatever reason. And so they would, you know, take his material and stuff like that. And also, in some cases, uh, especially toward the end of the war, the German economy was in such bad shape that they couldn't get materials and things like that. Right. Plus, the U.S. was at, at the end of the war, at least, targeting, and in some cases, Cases even bombing and attacking uh, Nazi atomic scientists. So there was an effort toward the end of the war to actually disrupt them in a direct way. Of course, there were there were other issues as well. I, I mean, like I know that Heisenberg, for example, he realized that building an atomic bomb was more of an engineering challenge than it was a scientific one. And they essentially assumed, rightly so, that they would have to turn the entire nation of Germany into a factory to do this, which is pretty much what the United States did in the 40s anyway. Yeah, and Niels Bohr was the one who uh, famously said that, that an atomic bomb was impossible because you would have to turn the entire country into a factory. Right. Well, he didn't count on the United States actually doing that. Uh, a, yeah. one, one figure I think is really amazing is that they spent $2 billion U.S. dollars on the atomic bomb in 1945 dollars. So, that, I mean, that was a ridiculous amount. That would be a ridiculous amount today. And another thing I don't think a lot of people understand about the Manhattan Project, a lot of times we hear about Los Alamos, which was very famous because of all the great scientists that were there. And they were the ones who actually took the components and put it together. But Los Alamos was only something like 4% 
of the entire atomic bomb project's budget. A lot of the money was actually going toward enriching uranium in places like Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and building plutonium in Washington state. And actually, we, we're going to talk about that a little bit when we get to thing number three in a we second. Are, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did not know, maybe I should have known this, but I didn't know that Soviet spies had stolen the blueprints for the America's atomic bomb. Is that legit? Yeah, uh, there were several uh, Soviet spies that were either involved in the Manhattan Project directly or were working and taking documents and things like that. Klaus Fuchs was the most famous one. Uh, David Greenglass is another one. But there were several uh, spies in Los Alamos who were there and at other places who were taking information, in some cases even small bits of material, and handing them over to the Soviets. Right. And the book sort of focuses on the German atomic bomb project. And because of all that focus on Germany, in some ways, we kind of lost track of the fact that the Soviets might be spying on us as well. And not only that, I think the difference also between the Soviets and the Germans was that the Soviets had a proper understanding of the scope and the scale of building a nuclear bomb. In fact, their their code word for their version of the Manhattan Project was enormous or enormous. So they knew right. that this was a massive project. Yeah, they understood it in a way that the Germans didn't. And more importantly, they convinced their leaders to understand it in a way that the Germans simply didn't. So the Bastard Brigade of the title of your book was this scientific intelligence mission codenamed Alsos. Uh, and they were tasked with finding out about the, the Nazi bomb. I just love the fact that this cast of characters really is virtually a cast of characters. I mean, someone's got to be uh, approaching you to turn this into a film, no? I mean, I hope so. If someone out there, a producer's <laughs> listening, I would love to love to do it. I really think it could sustain it. I mean, there were just so many eccentrics and misfits that they brought into this project who uh, some of them, I mean, they all wanted to stop the Germans, but a lot of them had their own agendas and going over there to uh, you know, to spy on, to sabotage, and in some cases, even try to assassinate members of the German atomic bomb project. Wait, the U.S. does that? I didn't know they did that. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. But you look at the main figures, you got Mo Berg, who's a former major league catcher who became an a would-be assassin and an atom spy. You've got Samuel Gutsmith, uh, a Dutch-born physicist. And you got Boris Pash, who was a former Hollywood high school baseball coach. Yeah, and, and Pash, uh, you know, he was involved in the Russian Revolution at one point, and then he became, as you said, a teacher at Hollywood High with Lana Turner and Judy Garland running around. Then he kind of chucked all that and decided that he was going to go on this atomic spy mission, he was running around in Europe trying to dig up dirt and to round up members of the Nazi atomic bomb project. And he was also, wasn't he put in charge of the of wartime like army counterintelligence on the West Coast? For the Manhattan Project. For the Manhattan yes. Project, which seems odd. It seems interesting that they, that would be someone with Russian roots, that they would, that, you know, you would think that that would be someone who would immediately raise a little bit of red flags when it came to intelligence communities. Yeah, he would actually, he had actually, he was actually born in the United States and then went over there because his dad was a Russian Orthodox bishop, but he actually fought against the communists during the Russian Revolution. So they figured he was on the right side. So they, 
they let him in charge of the intelligence. One of my favorite little facts that you talk about is in terms of the, the chemist, Walter Botha, who was distracted by a crisis in his love, love life, which made him to mistakenly conclude that heavy water would be a more suitable moderator than graphite in a nuclear reactor, which you say is one of the most consequential blunders in science history. Yeah, because as you said, he was involved in this affair. Uh, his wife basically and him were not getting along. He fell in love with another woman who happened to be a spy that they'd sent to actually watch him. But he just grew so infatuated with her that as he admitted uh, to her and in his diaries, he just wasn't thinking about his science. He was distracted by other things. And because of that, he made some mistakes in measuring some properties of a substance called graphite, which is actually the supposed lead in our pencils, as we call it here. But the graphite's actually the substance that writes in pencils. And that's actually a very important substance in building and testing atomic reactors, which are precursors to making bombs. And because of those mistakes that Berta made in measuring these properties of graphite, he concluded that graphite would not be a suitable material for making and testing atomic reactions. And because of that, Germany had to go with what's called heavy water, which is a much more difficult substance to get their hands on. And because of that, it was a much tougher road that they were down, that they had to go down. And it basically all arose because he was distracted about this love affair that he had. I must admit, I'm always fascinated by those almost sort of sliding door moments in history where you can see if things had gone on a different path. I mean, there's there's also the theory that uh, Stalin was assassinated by some of his own people because he was on the verge of launching a nuclear strike against the United States, which you can believe it or choose not to believe it. But the idea of so many of these times where either mankind could have been eradicated or whatever, had it not been for this one thing. And here you have someone like, you know, this this German chemist who happened to be distracted by his wife and consequently made a rather consequential decision, which potentially led to them not getting a nuclear bomb, is just such a fascinating thing for me. Yeah, I think one thing that I think is cool about science is that, you know, if, if a certain person didn't exist, you know, if Einstein had never existed, then we still would have discovered the theory of relativity at some point. Yeah. But the fact that Einstein did exist when he did, did end up having consequences for history. And eventually Germany would have realized that, oh, this guy Berta made a mistake. But because he made it when he made it, it really had big consequences for history. Right. And as you say, you know, if someone like Einstein hadn't existed, we still would have discovered theory of relativity at some point. The question is, at what point? Because, you know, all of the discoveries that come after that are cumulative, right? It's standing exactly, on the shoulders yep. of giants. And consequently, it could easily be 2021 and that discovery has not been made because other discoveries took us into different directions. And all of the things that have come from that, we still don't know yet. And those those ideas are just so compelling to, you know, sit in and mull over. Yeah, those kind of counterfactuals. Uh, and, and even though science in some ways is just a, a body of knowledge waiting to be discovered, uh, those counterfactuals still uh, are really cool to think about in science. Yeah, because they, they create fascinating narratives, right? At the end yep. of the day, one of the things that, that can make, I mean, I am not a, a left brain person. I'm more of a right brain person myself. But at the same time, one of the, the ways that I do appreciate the things that you are more interested in, which is one of the reasons why I appreciate your writing, is that it takes us into the realm of 
how does this affect human experience, right? How are these stories, you know, like in The Bastard Brigade, for example, you're talking about something that could easily come out of a Spielberg film, this ragtag group of people who are sent in to stop the Nazi bomb. Or when in Disappearing Spoon, for example, looking at something as simple as the periodic table and talking about how it affected different people like Gandhi and and, and the, the real world implications of science, which to me makes things all the more compelling to consume. Yeah, it's the real world implications. And for me, especially, it's the kind of the characters that are driving the stories. You mentioned right. Mo Berg, the Major League Baseball player uh, that got turned into an assassin. Or another character in the Bastard Brigade was actually Joseph Kennedy, the older brother of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, who actually died on a peripheral branch of this Bastard Brigade mission to stop the Nazi atomic bomb. And because of that, his brother, JFK, the younger one, actually ended up becoming president because Joseph, the older one, was the one that the family had been grooming to run for president. And JFK, it was sort of the alternate that they had to turn to after that. But of course, it had big consequences for history because of who JFK was specifically. So how do you feel in terms of your skills as a screenplay writer? Because it's waiting to be written. I mean, I hope so. I I, I would need to uh, develop those skills. I've never done anything like that. I'm more on the book side, <laughs> but I, I would- You know what? Something, something tells it. me you could develop those skills. I hope so. Maybe I should think about it. <laughs> Thing three. Thing number three, the crazy connection between your frying pan and nuclear war. This is another thing that you talked about in one of the episodes of your podcast, The Disappearing Spoon, and it goes back to the accidental discovery of Teflon. Yeah, so back in the 1930s, the DuPont company in the United States uh, had a bit of a problem. They wanted to make a new type of refrigerant. Yeah, let's let's back up for a second, because as you mentioned, and I did, actually did not know this, early 1900s refrigerators were possibly deadly because they used ammonia and sulfur dioxide. Gee, that's a nice thing to have in your home. They used yeah. ammonia and sulfur dioxide, and the seals would break and the gases would leak out, similar to, a, I guess, what you would think of as maybe a carbon monoxide leak today, and yep. families would all of a sudden be killed by their refrigerators. I had no idea. Yeah, they would suffocate because of their refrigerators. So this was not uncommon for this to happen back in the early days of refrigerators, where families would go to bed, uh, you know, healthy and happy, and they would not wake up because of the gases in their refrigerator. Right. Now, they then needed to find different coolants. The main one, of course, was Freon. The problem was that the biggest, uh, is DuPont the biggest chemical company? It certainly is today, I think. Yeah, if, if not if not the biggest, it's right up there. It's right up there. But another company had the patent for Freon. And consequently, DuPont said, we got to get in on this action. Exactly. And so they assigned one of their chemists, a guy named Roy Plunkett, the task of making a new non-toxic refrigerant so that they could have their own one to market. It's funny to think about because we think about Freon now as something which destroys the ozone and Freon is a, little, a bit of a four-letter word for a five-letter word. Uh, but at the same time, Freon, when you think about it, did save lives because in that time, it was, you know, it, there were people not being killed by the refrigerators. Yeah. Anyway, aside from that, uh, it led DuPont and it led Plunkett to, you know, experiment with a number of chemical combinations to try to create something that could compete and get around the patent. And lo and behold, by mistake, what happened? Basically, he was trying to take uh, some carbon and some fluorine and mix them together because those were the main components of Freon along with chlorine. So he's trying to run this reaction, basically. The first step was mixing carbon 
with fluorine. So we put them in some canisters and he set them on some ice overnight to let them cool. The next day, he tried to open the canisters and he thought that this gas would flood out, except when he opened them, nothing came out. And so eventually they had to end up sawing the canister open to see what the heck had happened, <laughs> where this, uh, where the reactants were. They opened it up and they found this white powder inside. And this white powder had some very strange, bizarre properties. And one of these properties was that it was completely unreactive. I mean, they threw everything they had in the very back of the chemical laboratory at this stuff to try to get it to react, the most corrosive stuff that they had. And it did nothing. It just sat there. It would not react with anything. Right. And the other amazing thing about it was that it was extremely slippery. It was like pouring oil on black ice. I mean, they had never seen anything that was this slippery before. And that substance, of course, was what we now call Teflon. He had accidentally created Teflon. Now, Teflon is the most slippery substance known to exist. Is that still verifiably true? It's the most slippery solid known to exist. Right, there might okay. be some liquids out there, but solids, yes. It's the I think it's the only substance we know of that a gecko's foot cannot cling to. Wow. I, I would have loved to be in the lab when they tested that thing out. Yeah. Uh, so consequently, they invent this thing and it kind of, they, they don't really know what to do with it. It kind of sits on the back shelf at DuPont with this accidental creation that Plunkett, I, based on uh, sort of your reporting on it, seemed a little bit embarrassed by, no? And that, I mean, he was, he was curious by it, but he was tasked with something else and accidentally mm -hmm. comes up with this white, super slippery powder, which had nothing to do with them finding this coolant to put into new refrigerators. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the dilemma of an industrial science scientist is that you want to follow your curiosity and you can to some extent, but at the end of the day, you're also have an assignment, you have to do something. So he got to test it, kind of play around with it, think, oh, wow, this is really cool. But at the end of the day, you're right, he had to kind of put it on the shelf and it was a curiosity and not much more than that. Right. And as you mentioned in our last segment, Los Alamos was not the only place where they were working on developing the nuclear bomb. They were also working in a number of other places. And this is where Teflon takes on a little bit of a more sinister nature. Yes, exactly. So the main part of this story then shifts to Oak Ridge in Tennessee, which is the main plant where they were enriching uranium. And without going too much into the detail, what they basically had to do is they had to separate one type of uranium, the non-bomb stuff, from the stuff they could put into a bomb, the enriched uranium. Right. And what process they used to do that was called gaseous diffusion. And to do this process, they had to turn the uranium into a gas, into a something like air, a gaseous substance. And the only gas that they could use was a gas called uranium hexafluoride, or HEX, as they called it. And the problem with HEX was that it was extremely, extremely corrosive. It could go down metal pipes okay, but not all metal pipes. They actually had to line them with nickel or other substances because it would attack iron even. So it would eat right through iron. And it would also, a bigger problem, was that it would eat through rubber gaskets and it would eat through rubber seals and the grease that they used as lubricants in the gaseous diffusion plant that they built. 
the ironic thing is that it almost connects back to the original refrigerators, right? Where you have the ammonia and, and sulfur dioxide leaking out because mm-hmm. the seals were breaking. Here you have these nuclear scientists coming up, you know, trying to enrich uranium. And they're having a similar problem, which is that the seals are being disintegrated by the hex and they need some way to protect the seals. Yeah, that, that's actually a good parallel uh, between the early work on refrigerators and this work, because anything they tried to use to seal these pipes and prevent the hex from leaking out would just be corroded away by this gas. It was extremely corrosive. Right. So if, if only they had some friends at DuPont. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. There was actually sort of a meeting where they sat down, the head of the Manhattan Project, and they said, look, we know you're you're helping out with this plant, but we're having this problem with the hex gas, and we need some sort of substance that is you know, really non-corrosive, but it's also really slippery and can act as a lubricant. Is there some way you could come up with something like that? And, you know, we don't have a record of what happened, but I can imagine the DuPont people sort of smirking and saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll look into that. It might cost you a little bit, but we'll see if we uh, if we can come up with something like that. Because they looked and they knew that they had Teflon sitting on their shelves. And again, it was perfect. It was completely non-corrosive, but it was also very slippery. So it made a very, very good lubricant. It was the perfect substance to help them complete this gaseous diffusion plant. And without Teflon, we would not have had an atomic bomb. Isn't that fascinating? It also does make you wonder how many accidental creations are made by companies like DuPont, which are, as we speak, sitting on the back shelf waiting for a use to be thrust upon them in the real world. Do you know what I mean? I seem to recall, and maybe I'm, maybe this is apocryphal, I seem to recall reading that Silly Putty was invented for some other reason aside from just the silly thing. Yeah, I don't remember the details of Silly Putty, but you're right. It was invented by the Dow company and it was just, yeah, it was just an accident that they had. So, you know, the funny thing is the discovery of Teflon, the accidental discovery of Teflon also makes me think a little bit, it's similar to the discovery of champagne, right? Which is that it was something that was just created completely by accident. They found it and realized that it had this completely separate use. Post-it notes, microwaves, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. So Teflon goes on to have, of course, this this full second life because they realize, wait a minute. Now, it it's funny because it almost seems like something out of the, you know, misogynist handbook, but was it not a the, the, the wife of one of the scientists who suggested that it be used on frying pans? It was, yes. Uh, so after the uh, Manhattan Project ended, uh, DuPont had all this Teflon and they had figured out a cheap way to produce it. And they started looking around and thinking, okay, you know, we should try to think about some way where we can use this. And it was actually not the DuPont company as much as a French uh, husband and wife team who came up with the first practical applications for it. The husband in the husband and wife team was using it on his fishing lure and his fishing line to prevent them from getting tangled and things like that. But it was actually his wife who said, hey, you know, if this substance is really that non-corrosive, so it doesn't react with anything else, and it's also very slippery, it would make a great surface on frying pans and baking pans. And they decided to run with it. And they were the ones who really hit on that idea and really got it to take off. So now as someone who knows a fair amount about Teflon, I'm sure you probably get asked one question more than any other. Uh, if you if Teflon sticks to nothing, how does it stick to the frying pan? Exactly. The old shower thought itself. If you take the Teflon molecule and you sort of fire a beam at it, you can end up knocking some of the atoms off. 
So Teflon basically is carbon surrounded by a shell of fluorine atoms. But if you knock some of those fluorine atoms off, you can get a little bit on the end that is sticky and that will stick to the metal in a frying pan. Right. Okay. So now is that- It's a clever trick. It is a clever trick, actually. And it's it's funny to think that that level of work goes into something that you can just pop down to your local target and buy. Do you know what I mean? So many of the ideas of of the complex engineering and chemical processes that go into the daily items that we use. Yeah, it really is incredible how much uh, engineering and ingenuity it takes to produce something that we probably take for granted on a daily basis. Yeah. Hey, I don't take it for granted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it every single day. And that will do it for this week's episode. Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. Any any uh, things you want to shout out? Now, I know, now correct me if I'm wrong, there is a new book in the works, correct? There is. The book is called The Ice Pick Surgeon, and it will be out in July. And the premise of the book basically is about a bunch of scientists uh, from different eras who got so obsessed with some idea or topic that they took their research way too far and started trampling ethical boundaries and in some cases even committing crimes in the name of science. It also, based on the title, now I know nothing about the book, based on the title, it also talks about the fact that many of these surgeries that were done in at least the early to mid part of the 20th century, there, there were people using ice picks as a legitimate surgical tool. Yeah, specifically that story refers to Walter Freeman, yes. who uh, was the self-proclaimed Henry Ford of lobotomies, yeah. which he's the one who really spread them around the world in some cases, but around the United States especially, in promoting those as a legitimate tool to combat mental illness. Right. Freeman, when he first started uh, performing the surgeries, and I, I don't have any notes in front of me, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, he would pretty much go in behind the eye with a little ice pick and give it a couple of taps with the hammer and hopefully it would do the trick. Is that correct? Yep, that's pretty much it. Uh, the By the end of it, he did have a specialized tool for the surgery, but the first ones that he did in secret in his office in Washington, D.C. were with the ice pick that he simply took from his kitchen drawer, brought it to his office and started performing these lobotomies with it. So he was actually using an ice pick for it. And the medical community early on was a little bit, they didn't quite know what to think of it because sometimes it worked. Because if you think about the human brain, of course, it is so, I mean, your brain and my brain have different things in different locations, etc. So if you're going to be taking an ice pick to a certain part of the brain, you know, hey, this, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. It's the same kind of idea. Yeah, it was. And the other issue that I don't think a lot of us appreciate now, and I certainly didn't when I was writing the book, is that they had zero other treatments for mental illness at the time. Right. There was no effective therapy, really. And especially there were no drugs at that time they could use. And because they had a little bit of success at the beginning, some people thought, well, you know, we, we should allow this guy to kind of give him a shot at least. And then he took things way too far, as, as often happens. I have a theatrical background, and I, and I don't know if you know Tennessee Williams, the author of Streetcar Named Desire. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his sister Rose was one of the people who was mm. originally operated on and had a, a lobotomy, which did not come out well. I, I think, if memory serves, she might have been a teenager. She was very young mm-hmm. and was left incapacitated in an institution for the rest of her life. A similar story with Rosemary Kennedy, who, yes. to go back to the Kennedys, yeah. she was JFK's sister. Same sort of story. She was just a little loud and rambunctious. They gave her a lobotomy to quiet her down and she ended up spending the rest of her life in an institution. 
Look at this. All of our stories tied together today. Look at us. In a nice, nice little bow there. Nice, yeah. neat little packages. you have any socials uh, that you want people to follow? I do. I am on Twitter. It's Sam underscore Keen, K-E-A-N. Uh, I have a Facebook book page as well. Or they can just go to my website. It's simply samkeen.com. They can find out about my books there, about uh, my podcast, things like that. Uh, and you have a number of books aside from just uh, the ones that uh, we have shouted out so far. Uh, however, uh, as a uh, as a reader and fan of Disappearing Spoon, I think that's a, that's a great place for people to start. Uh, the podcast itself, which Sam produces, is also a wonderful podcast, a limited, uh, limited edition podcast, which you can go and uh, find on any of your podcast feeds. Uh, and so when the book comes out in the summer, I'd love it if you could pop back on and we can chat about it. Sound good? I, I would love to, yeah. All right. Thanks for being on the show, Sam. All right. Thank you. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at threeinterestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things. Or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.